Just a warning, this episode contains discussions of sexual assault, PTSD, and the depiction of graphic content. Some of these themes may be triggering, so listener discretion is advised. And I think that's the beginning when I was about seven, eight years old, that set the foundation for eventually moving forward and, and somehow being manipulated by these guys. Then uh, that would be the beginning, and then they would traffic us. This was not a natural act for us. It was a survival act, and we were felt dirty and disgusted and ashamed. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bound by the Cloak. Today, we have the conclusion of Greg Bucciaroni's story. If you haven't listened to part one, you really should, or else you'll be completely lost with this one. So go check out episode three before you go any further. So let's get right to it. I'm going to tell the truth. I've been lying about it to myself for years, decades, and this is the time to put it all out. And if if people don't like it, tough shit. When you were younger, um, and since you were raised by just your mother, for the most part, right, single parent household. I, I guess I just wonder where was your like where was your mother? What was she doing in terms of like? So I mean, you were put into these programs, but was she working? Was she was she just sort of not my around? Was, well, no, my mom was pretty much working two jobs. Okay, she was because keep in mind we didn't have a lot of time. She had a lot of bills. She was stressed because, you know, my mom, you know, was stuck with all these children and we were rotten kids. I mean, you know, we were pain in the asses and for different reasons. Huh. And, and my mom was like, you know, she had to pay the bills and she was struggling and, and this is not the life she wanted. You know, she, she got married and, and the marriage didn't work for whatever reason. I don't want to start bringing up family things because then I'll get family calling me up saying, why are you telling that stuff? (laughs) Uh, But let's just say my mom did not have an easy life and she really struggled to make the best of it. And she had a lot on her plate. And so she kind of let my older siblings try to babysit us. Uh, But, you know, they were, had their issues too. and, And I manipulated all that. So my mom, you know, my mom has a lot of regrets and, and she's, you know, she didn't know, she knew I was getting in trouble, but she didn't realize to what level. Because I wasn't telling her, and my siblings didn't know everything. They didn't know I was out there turning tricks and all this other stuff. And my family did not know. And then when they, I told them, they were in shock. And then there were certain factions of the family that said, you, that's disgusting. You shouldn't talk about it. Just man up and move on. And, and you, you know, you got your family's reputation and you're going to be an embarrassment to the family. And then there was others that supported me. Uh, so there was, you know, there was that. But my mom, you know, she did the best she could. But, you know, she was overwhelmed. She was struggling to put food on the table. And, we, you know, she, was, she didn't make a lot of money. And she was probably mentally and physically beat by raising all these rotten kids at the end of the day, with very little help. Yeah. I yeah. give, you know, 
I'm not going to say anything else about my family because I don't want to start a family feud. Oh, no, I totally understand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess one question, one last question I have is, so say there's a young Greg Butcheroni, you know, a young boy who is in, who was in your situation. What would you, what, what would you tell someone like him? Well, well, I've, I've dealt with these. We just had a case that this got successfully prosecuted in Philadelphia by District Attorney Larry Crasler. And there was two young street boys that were involved in, in victims of sexual abuse and trafficking. And similar circumstances, believe it or not, because I've been very outspoken on the on social media and in person. I, like, I do these talks and these workshops about it because now I, I'm, I talk the Women organized against rape took the blame off of my shoulders and put it to where it needs to be, meaning failed uh, youth programs where they, they should have been the red flags were there, law enforcement, accountability with law enforcement. So <clears throat> I, these two kids, I won't say their names, but back in 2019, the mom reached out to me and said that her two children, uh, one just turned 18, one turned 19, but for years, they just got arrested for beating up and allegedly robbing a guy that had been sexually abused enough for years. But the guy called up in similar circumstances. There was some type of disagreement and allegations that they beat him up or robbed him and he didn't know him and they were locked up. So the mom called me and I, and I talked to the, the mom and I said, if they're, if they're willing to sit down with me and talk and cooperate, I can get the district attorney's office to handle this case filled out for special victims was a waste of time because uh any boy that's in and out of trouble uh you know they don't see them as victims uh, especially if it's children of color and these two young men will happen to be black so and oh you know they're, they're not credible so i you know i went to special victims i got to run around again i do not trust special victims or the internal affairs of the philadelphia police department i don't trust a lot of cops because a lot of cops, even the good cops, aren't going to jeopardize their jobs for, for the bad cops. Because if it goes wrong, you know, you got that thin blue line of silence and cops don't tell cops because then your career could, you know, you'll be, instead of part of a team, you'll be an individual. And so I've never really, I, I, I want to trust cops and I do trust certain cops, but there's a lot of cops I don't trust because especially anything to do with special victims or, or, or internal affairs because they won't. So I got these two young boys. They kept blaming the district attorney for not handling it. I didn't believe it in 2019. So I would not let it go. And I reached out to the DA here. He knew nothing about it. So he took, I convinced the district attorney's office to take the case away from the Philadelphia police department and allow their own detectives, district attorney detectives to handle the case. And they did. And I convinced these two boys to, instead of being criminals, now they're victims. And then the truth came out. They cooperated. And the charges were dropped against them. And this guy, it was a two-year back and forth in court. COVID-19 did not help. But the guy finally pled guilty. uh, He pled guilty. He's going to go to sentencing. And apparently he's facing uh, 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 10 to 20 years. 
Wow. So there was young boys. But wow. what I got to do is I got to talk to them because boys are going to put up that, oh, I'm a boy, ain't no guy doing this. I'm not going to motherfucker around. Like they come with this straight tough slang. And I used to be that. And but once you break those barriers and you get to see the real person and they trust you, they got to trust you. If they don't trust you, they won't tell you anything. And it takes time because it's not the manly thing to talk about. Keep in mind, society is based on with men by a lot of Neanderthal mentality. So like when girls in college and they, they, they had a few drinks and these guys decide they want to gangbang them. Oh, that's the manly thing to do. I mean, to these knucklehead Neanderthals. Oh, you're a banger. She's a whore. And then when she comes out and says this, oh, you know, you deserved it. Look how you were dressed. And, you know, that's just the mentality. Uh, I'm not saying all men, but the common. So I work to break these barriers. And then when I gain their trust and they start telling you a little bit, I wanted them to trust me and to come forward and have the courage. And, and, and it's not easy. And it goes by, you know, each circumstances and who the kid is. And, you know, there's a lot that plays into that. But I've talked to them. And the first thing I do is I tell them my story. Yeah. So they, they say, this guy's street tough guy, you know, it can happen to him. You know, then, and then I don't, you know, it's, this is, you know, it's, it's I'm not gay because if you, if you, if you, this happened to you, it, uh, not everyone, but a lot of people in society will think you're gay. And that you wonder you're gay, you just don't know you're gay. And so that's that's the stigma you gotta fight. And but once we get past all this stuff and we start talking, it takes time, but they start talking and then I try to get them to cooperate with law enforcement to move forward to get justice. Some of them, even after they talk, they still don't want to involve law enforcement because they're trying to avoid the future uh trauma, emotional trauma. Yeah. But I, I work on them. At least if I can get them to get therapy so that they don't go out and start doing more drugs or crime or alcohol or domestic violence and as they move forward in life, at least that helps. If they don't want to get the police involved, at least get therapy. And then we try to set them up with that. Yeah. I mean, your work is so important. And, you know, what you're doing is really changing people's perceptions about a lot of different things, young men, young men from, you know, various backgrounds. Um, and also that really sexual assault and sexual abuse can happen to anyone at any time. Doesn't matter where you're from, right? It's, it, it, it's, it's a weird like epidemic that way. It just crosses borders. And we've had some celebrities come out. Sugar Ray Leonard came out and said that he was sexually raped as a child. Mike Tyson. Yep. You know, who would think that anyone could rape Mike Tyson? He said when he was a kid, running the streets, some guy yeah. grabbed him and raped him. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that takes a lot of courage for Sugar Ray Leonard and Mike Tyson, especially Mike Tyson. Yeah. Like, they're like, what? And, you know, so now it's starting to show that it's not a gay thing. It's a tragic thing that happens, but it happens to men and boys too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think public awareness and education is the key. So, yeah. Of I mean, course, advocate, advocating for victims and survivors. Those three things are, 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 are the key to 
waking up society. Yeah. I mean, thank you for all that you're doing and also talking about your story because it's definitely not easy. And, and you know, if that. you would have, if you would have asked me to talk about this 20, uh, 15 years ago, I would have denied everything because I wasn't ready to talk and I was ashamed and I blamed myself. But after like, you know, years of therapy, we have to see, I'm an activist. Everyone says, how come the other ones don't do it? Because they're survivors, but they're not activists. Right. So they're not going to talk about it because that's not what they do. I'm an activist. This is my redemption. Just like when you see people come out and support the Black Lives Matter movement or any movement, uh, whether what side you're on, they're doing it because this is their passion. And this is my passion. <clears throat> and I've lied about it all my life. It's time to start telling the truth. And that's why I publicly do it. Everyone says, we're doing it for money. I don't ask for nothing. I don't want anything. I just want to go, when I go to meet God, I want him to know that I truly changed my life and tried to help others. This way I could die in peace. Everyone's going to die eventually. I know that I died doing the best that I could. And I didn't do it for, I don't, I never, I didn't shoot Penn State. I didn't ask anyone for money or anything like that. I, I do it for redemption. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. And, and anytime you guys want to interview, I know I cover a lot of ground and it kind of goes back and forth, uh, but it's not an easy thing to talk about. But I do want to educate the world on, you know, how real this really is every day. And that there's children right now, as we speak, and boys and girls that are being sized up and being groomed and coerced into a life of victimization. How prevalent do you think it is right now? Well, you got the Super Bowl coming. Uh, that's a big money thing where people come in and uh, anytime you have big sporting events or Super Bowls or or around politics, big time politics, or it, it's very prevalent. But the, what happens is no one's investigating the boys. You do hear a lot about the girls, and I'm very proud that that's yeah. starting to happen. But you seldom hear about boys because <clears throat> the men survivors aren't as outspoken as I am because they're not activists. They're survivors and they're trying to move forward in life and they feel they can't heal if they keep reliving the trauma. So they try to get past it and move forward. But with me, I'm the activist and I'm pushing public awareness, advocacy and education so i have to keep this alive and keep pushing it because history repeats itself as we see in the jeffrey epstein case yeah and look at all the people that lied and discredited those poor girls and netflix did a documentary on those girls i don't know if you guys saw that hey they hired people that you should take a look at what they did they had anyone that tried to help those girls were harassed and terrorized and bullied and discredited. The girls were made to be discredited, lied, and, and it's very hard for a victim to come forward under these circumstances. It's because it, then no one believes you and it, it, it makes it even worse. And, you know, it, it, we got to keep this alive and we need more activists to come out publicly, not just once by its news media, but it's everything you do in life moving forward. 
to save. You know, I can't save the children from the past because I can't change the past. But what happens today moving forward, I can't change that. And that's what I'm doing with the help of partners like yourselves. Yeah. And I hope, you know, I hope 10 years from now, we have less victims um, and we have more people talking about it. What's great about it is that people are being held accountable criminally and civilly. So it's a wake up call to America. If you're running institutions that are exploiting children, uh, not only are you going to get locked up, but the institution that enabled it after the, the red flags, you're going to be held accountable civilly. Right. And, right. and people, now these institutions, if you look at any major institution, red flags were everywhere, but no one wanted to deal with it because it's an uneasy thing to do and the integrity of the academic or these facilities and, and, and people's social light statuses and all this crap. So people just pretend like they, they turn their head and pretend like they didn't know it. And then if anyone questions, did you know, they do, um, there was a, a Sergeant Charlton, Hogan's hero. I know nothing, nothing. I don't know if you guys ever saw that TV <laughs> show is a sitcom yes. called Hogan's Heroes. But then they play stupid and they yeah. do the three monkeys. And, and But you know what? That don't work anymore. Now, if you enabled it by not reporting it and stopping it the best you could. Now you're going to be held accountable civilly. And we want that not only the offenders, we want the offenders held accountable criminally, but anybody that enabled them, especially institutions, we want them held accountable. We can't get them criminally, hit them in the pockets because that's what hurts them most. Greg, thank you so much for sharing your story. I think the work you're doing is, is amazing and really, really needed. Thank you guys. We're partners in this together. Victims' lives matter. They do. They do. We want to thank Greg for sharing his story, his story of resilience. We also wanted to learn more about sexual assault, the prevalence of it, and where survivors can go if they needed help. We reached out to War not to verify Greg's story, but to learn more about sexual assault and the services that War provides. They clearly stated that they cannot confirm or deny if they provided services to Greg, but they did give us a lot of information about the variety of services that sexual assault programs provide to survivors on a holistic level. We spoke with Rachel Copen, the co-executive director of WAR. So all of our volunteers and staff that go through sexual assault counselor training, it teaches people how to respond to survivors, but it also meets a really important confidentiality criteria for the state of Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania has a law in place for survivors of sexual violence that if they engage support from a sexual assault counselor, anything that they share with that counselor is privilege. So it's, it's covered under the statute of absolute privilege. So 
going through that training and there's a 45, there's, it's technically 45 hours. There's a five hour like practicum portion to it, but to complete that training and then work with a survivor, whatever that survivor discloses to a sexual assault counselor is protected. And it's actually many people, when they think of confidentiality, when they're thinking of HIPAA, the state law is actually stronger than HIPAA. So it's a very strong confidentiality. And that was something that was put into place that victim advocates and lawyer advocates put into place back in the late 70s that then became part of of law. So that at that time, there was a lot of what was being said in that relationship with a counselor was being poked at on stand to try to discredit the survivor. And it was, as one can imagine, very harmful and traumatic. So through that advocacy, it then created this protection. So there is a very strong protection of confidentiality and very similar to some people that work in domestic violence. It's a very similar confidentiality that domestic violence counselors share. Thanks so much, Rachel, for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Sure. So if you could introduce yourself, if you could introduce uh, WAR. So I'm Rachel Copen. I'm the Director of Counseling Services at WAR Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence, formerly known as WAR Women Organized Against Rape. I am also, as of May 2021, the Acting Co-Executive Director of, of WAR. And WAR is a rape crisis center in Philadelphia. It's the only rape crisis center in Philadelphia. And we serve Philadelphians that are survivors of sexual violence. And that includes sexual harassment, sexual assault, and sexual abuse. Could you give us a description of what sexual assault and sexual abuse is? When we talk about sexual violence, sexual assault, sexual abuse, or sexual harassment, we're talking about any kind of sexual contact that has gone against someone's wishes, consent, or has happened underneath fraud, coercion, or for. Well, sexual assault has been in the news a lot lately, and it's very much focused on women, but also male victims have come out to talk about sexual assault and sexual abuse. So just curious about how it affects women differently than men, if it does. Sexual violence, non-discriminatory. So it affects across all genders, all races, ethnicities, all diversity. It affects people. There are vulnerable populations that tend to have a higher rate of sexual violence. And one of those populations are um, the LGBTQ population. They tend to, unfortunately, face higher instances of sexual violence and really deserve to be protected and safe. So I think you asked, how is sexual violence different from men and women? So women tend to be a little bit more at risk for sexual violence than men, though when men and women or males and females are children, you'll see there's like an equal percentage of sexual violence occurrences that happen. And then as women and men become women and men, sexual violence tends to happen more towards women than towards men. Um, I think the data that is available is very robust, but it's also thought of as one of the most underreported crimes or underreported instances of what happens. So you can really only go with what people share. And I and I share that because it's possible that men do face sexual violence at a rate that is more closely comparable to women, but are not sharing it as much because of societal pressures and shame and feelings of guilt that men sometimes have that is a little bit different than 
what women will face. Though women also do have their unfortunate fair share of shame and guilt around sexual violence as well. So in terms of the work that you do at war, could you tell me the breadth of the services? Because my understanding is sexual assault can affect a survivor in many different ways and the services differ from each individual survivor. We have our direct service department. And I think of that department as four different subgroups. So we have what we refer to as victim response services. So we have a 24-hour hotline for the city of Philadelphia for sexual violence. So if someone is experiencing sexual violence, if it's something that had just happened or something that's happened 20 years ago, and they're now thinking about it or struggling with it, it doesn't matter if it was recent, they can call us and we'll walk them through support and then also options. Some people want to report, some people don't, and we really respect either decision and and try to help people through that decision process of what happens in a reporting process and what would be the outcome, potential outcomes of not reporting, of reporting. So we really have, we really are respectful in in the choice of that survivor. So that's one of the things we do in the hotline We also, again, I mentioned support. So a lot of times we might be providing like crisis support or emotional support in a moment and help people through what's kind of referred to as trauma response symptoms and not only explaining like this is very normal to have a trauma response symptom, this is what it feels like when when you've experienced trauma, but also here's some tools to help mitigate those effects in this moment right now. And let's figure out how we can help you learn to manage these symptoms on a longer term basis. So that's what happens on our hotline. We also do something called medical accompaniment. And so in medical accompaniment is where a victim advocate upon the request of survivor will go out and be present during a rape kit exam by a SANE nurse. So SANE nurse is someone that has specialized training, very extensive training and being able to provide a forensic rape exam to a survivor. And so if a survivor wants us, wants that added support, we'll go out and be present. And we're very fortunate to have a really close relationship with our SANE nurses in Philadelphia. There is, Philadelphia is a little unique as a county. In, um, in the state of Pennsylvania, we are, I think, the only county that handles sexual assaults in the way that we do, instead of going to a hospital to get a rape kit done, we have a center called PSARC. It stands for the Philadelphia Sexual Assault Response Center. And that's where kits can be done. So SANE nurses are dispatched out to that center. And the unique thing about that center, it's in a co-located space with special victims unit. So if someone wants to report to the police, they can in that same matter of hours where before it would be maybe even a matter of days to, you know, get a kit done at a hospital, then go to the police. It could be a very long process. And so it's become a shorter more efficient process. And keep in mind, people can get a kit done and not report to the police. That's something that a lot of people don't realize they can do. And there are other things that happen with a kit. People can get preventative medication for STDs or HIV, or um, they can get preventative medication for pregnancy if they need that. And that's all free of charge. So the kit and the medication is all free of charge. So those are the things that can happen at at PSART. And our role there, other than working really closely with the SANE nurses, is to 
make sure that the survivors' voices are being heard. In that moment, there's a lot happening and there's a lot happening at a time where one can be emotionally flooded just from the experience they've had. So we just make sure that they're being heard, that they are, that they can take in the information as much as they can and that they're as much as their basic emotional needs are being met and physical needs are being met but making sure that they have water have snacks key circus and the sandwiches are very good at that too we are very lucky to have a really great group of same nurses that serve philadelphia and so that's kind of what medical accompaniment looks like and then one of the other services that we provide under eviction response is called court accompaniment so unfortunately not all cases are picked up for trial or go to be away towards a preliminary hearing. But if they are, we have a close relationship with our DA's office that contracts us to be in all preliminary hearings for sexual violence. So we're present as victim court advocates in the courtroom for sexual violence that serves adults and children. So we will help support that family. So what that looks like is survivors will really be facing their perpetrator possibly for that first time since the experience. And it can be a very terrifying experience. It can be very anxiety producing to just be in a courtroom. There's a lot of authority figures there. There's a judge, there's police officers around, there's DAs, and there's also people in the audience that are supporting the other cases that happen to be there for the day. So it can be a, a very anxiety-ridden, unusual experience. So to have a victim advocate there to kind of guide that person on, this is what this day could look like. This is um, what, what I am here for. I'm here to you know, remind you that there's somebody here that's a support that, that you can look towards. A lot of times people have their family there, but sometimes their family is also so overwhelmed emotionally that they can't always provide the same support that someone that's outside of that situation can. And so we're also there to support the family members as well. So we're saying the same things to them and helping navigate them through that process. And because we work really closely with the DA's office, they welcome our presence and us to be there to help keep that survivor as calm as could be imaginable in a very stressful situation for a survivor to be in. And I do want to have a disclaimer that our court advocates are not legally trained in any way. So we're not providing any kind of legal assistance or legal guidance. We're really just providing the support that a sexual assault counselor would support in the legal process. So those are our victim response services. And we have a couple of other, I said, I mentioned before we have these subgroups and so one of our other main subgroups that we have are clinicians. So we have especially trained trauma therapists that provide very specific trauma-focused therapy to clients to help them process their sexual violence experience. So if someone has been assaulted, they could have received support from us by a crisis advocate during a forensic interview exam. They could have then also gotten our support through court accompaniment, and they could also be in therapy with us in trauma therapy. So there's a couple of different trauma therapies we provide, and we recognize that trauma affects people in many, many different ways, and we feel it's important that we have lots of different ways to help people through their trauma. So 
even though we are aligned to a few evidence-based practices, we welcome other promising practices like somatic care or art expression or healing or journaling or things like that. So we use, we follow protocols for prolonged exposure. We also more recently have added on eye movement desensitization and reprocessing or EMDR. And for children, we use something called trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And a few of our other therapists have training in cognitive processing therapy, which our clients really like. And some of our clients really like something called TANT or trauma art narrative therapy. So we, because our specialization is so specific, we are a really good place to process trauma, but we know that when people come to see us, they need a lot more than just trauma processing. So we work with a lot of other agencies to help provide them the care that they deserve for the other needs that they have coming in. And so we do our best work when we can work within a treatment team. And so we will see people for therapy for somewhat shorter term in comparison to like longer kinds of therapy. So we'll see people for up to about two years or so. And we're not, we don't like limit sessions, but our care tends to kind of be completed within that time frame. And then the last service we provide is a very newer service for us. A couple of years ago, we started a small trafficking team, an anti-trafficking team. And so we do some anti-trafficking work for sex trafficking. So we have a therapist that's received some specialized training in helping survivors of sex trafficking heal and receive that training from the GEMS Institute, which is a really wonderful institute in New York that is survivor-led and they do a lot of training on best care. And Polaris, who runs the national anti-trafficking hotline, they also recommend EMDR as a standard of care for survivors. So we have that training as well to provide that therapy. And we also have in that team, a manager of anti-trafficking that does a lot of coordination and care and education and prevention services. We also have an education and outreach team. It's a different department that has really specific focus on raising bystander intervention awareness so that people can learn how to recognize if someone's in danger of sexual violence and the safest way that they could intervene. We have something called Safe Bars where we, it's actually something that started in DC and we were um, fortunate enough to be able to bring it to Philadelphia where um, bars that are interested in learning how to keep their patrons safe from sexual violence can go through our training that becomes a certification to become a safe bar. And then they learn how to safely intervene to help protect people from instances of sexual violence in in a safe way for them and their staff. So that's one example. We also do, we have a healthy masculinity initiative. So we help kind of raise awareness on rape culture and different ways to have healthy masculinity um, and what that even means versus toxic masculinity. And we do quite a bit of other, we have um, another thing to highlight is we have something called the Lotus program where we specifically mentioned at the very beginning of our talking that LGBTQ 
IA plus tend to have higher rates of sexual violence and really deserve to be to be safe. So we have a, a, a specific LGBTQ educator that will go out and teach about prevention to agencies to help raise that awareness so that they can be aware of when they are serving people, what could they be, be seeing. And they're a wonderful educator. We're very lucky to have them. It sounds like Philadelphia does a good job with these programs, awareness and education outreach and support for victims. I think so. I don't know about other places, but it seems like, you know, you could really do make a huge effort. I've heard of the safe bars thing and I, yeah, I've only known of it in Philadelphia and DC. That program is really special and it focuses a lot on what bystander intervention can look like in that space in a safe way. I think a lot of people want to keep people around them safe in their community, but they might not always know how to do that. And it's a really great program that teaches people how to do that. And I think the unique thing about it is once a bar goes through that or bar restaurant goes through that process, they can become, they can market themselves that way. They can be certified as an it does help people that maybe they are more fearful of going out and enjoying themselves. It helped them select where they might feel safer to go. And so that's, I think, another a really great part of that program. Our educator, she's our um, advocacy coordinator. She, her name is Lakeisha Anthony, and she does a lot of, a lot of that. She does that training and it's really, it's really a unique program. So back to the the support that you offer for survivors, I'm just wondering, like, obviously, like you said, some people choose to report the sexual assault and some people do not. What would be a reason that somebody would not report the sexual assault versus somebody who does report? There's a lot of reasons why people don't report. And we hold the framework that a survivor knows they're the expert in themselves and in their life. So when someone doesn't report, it's usually because they are thinking through potential consequences in their own life. Meaning sometimes people don't report because they are fearful of retaliation from either that person or that person's family. Sometimes people don't report because they are not feeling safe with the police and they do not want to be involved with police or with the court system in general. And sometimes people don't report because they might not have the energy to go through that process. It can be a re-traumatizing process to go through. And our role in that process is to try to try to reduce that re-traumatizing potential. But it's really hard to have to go and make a statement and sign it and then be interviewed and have to basically tell your story over and over again after it's just happened. So, you know, we, we really value why people don't report and, and understand that they're making the decision that is, that they feel is best for them in that situation in their life. So there's a lot of statistics on why people report or don't report. And on RAIN, the national website, they have some wonderful statistics. There are some statistics that I'll be looking at today from NSBRC and Polaris. And RAIN also has some wonderful statistics. They have like a beautiful outline of all the reasons why people don't report. In your years of doing this work, 
I'm curious as to what is the most common thought or opinion that people who are not from this field, people who are not really, or people who don't really know so much about the facts and statistics about sexual assault have? I'm placing myself in the situation where I'm meeting somebody for the first time and they learn what I do and their reaction, right? Because at this point, many people in my life, they're experts as well, because, you know, just just our own awareness and sharing that. But I think, you know, when I meet somebody for the first time and they ask what I do, a lot of times people only think that it's something that affects women. I think that, you know, I sometimes wonder if they're thinking what kind of woman is it, you know, are they thinking of race and ethnicity? And, you know, it's not just the women that sometimes are more likely to be seen in media as survivors of sexual violence. It's all women across gender, across race and ethnicity. It's not just cisgendered women. And then the second thing is that comes up is people will then ask, oh, that's so hard. How can, how do you do that work? And so it's kind of like a twofold of like only thinking of one particular kind of person that's affected and then how um, tragic that is and not to minimize the trauma that someone goes through. But when we do this work, we really, we're kind of unified. The people that do this work of how beautiful the healing process is for people and really become inspired by the strength that we see in our clients and in our survivors and their resiliency. And that is the one of the most rewarding things about doing this work and just seeing how amazing people are after going through things that are to some are unimaginable. You mentioned before trauma response symptoms, and I was just wondering if you could elaborate on on what those symptoms might be, what they might look like. Traumatic stress symptoms are symptoms that survivors of trauma can have that sometimes are very scary and perplexing to survivors because they might have this feeling of like, what's going on with me? I don't know what this is. But in actuality, it's very expected for people to have the reactions that they have when they've been through a traumatic experience. It's, I hate to say the word normal, and I've already said it before, but it is normal to have a reaction. So traumatic stress can look like anything from, it's kind of anything from like fear responses. So Think about when you are watching a scary movie and you might can feel your breath shortening or your pulse racing a little bit. You might start to sweat. Sometimes people can have like stomach issues or it might just feel like jumpy. So you might kind of startle more easily. Those are kind of examples of your autonomic system, your nervous system kind of like kicking in and reacting to a stressful, scary situation. And that's, those are like great things that to happen. Your, your body needs to respond in the way that it does. I think when it becomes problematic and what is kind of referred to as traumatic stress is when that's coming, that's like continuing to happen on an ongoing basis. And there's no foreseen reason why you should be feeling that fear response. Usually what's happening is there's something in one's environment that's triggering, but they just aren't sure exactly or haven't been able to pinpoint what that is yet. And so when something becomes kind of more than just a startle or fear response, it's when you have like prolonged, it can actually affect lots of different things. It can affect the way you think about the world. It can affect the way your your thoughts just form you might have more like 
fearful or negative thoughts of your daily life than you may have in the past. It can change the way you just view the world instead of it being kind of either a safe or neutral place. It might be a scary and dangerous place. And it can also really affect on a long-term basis your general over physical health, your overall physical health. So traumatic stress can produce like chronic fatigue. It can produce other kinds of like chronic illnesses in a person. And it can also affect people's moods. So people can either be very anxious or sometimes anxiety looks like anger and irritability. So they might be lashing out in there at others and, and not know why. Or, and then it can kind of start chipping away at supports and interpersonal relationships. And so that's kind of like normal traumatic stress responses that then need to be looked at for different ways to heal from so that you can prevent these longer term things that can come up. So rape culture and sexual assault has changed dramatically, you know, in the past few decades. So love to hear your thoughts, you know, how has Mm -hmm. it changed and are we in an okay space right now, or do you think we still need to do better? I think we're in a better space and I think we are, we can always do better. <laughs> so we can continue to do better. I've been doing this work for I don't know, almost 20 years at this point. And what I've seen from the Me Too movement has been amazing. Just to see that the way that Toronto Burke has been able to take this and have it become a dinner conversation. And I don't mean to make that sound minute, like that's amazing to me. This is not something that people feel comfortable talking about in general. And to have it be like, people know what Me Too means now. Like if they, they know what it was referring to, to have that become this, to just be part of the public discourse is, is amazing. And to know that it is you know, survivor run is also equally amazing. And I have not, I, you know, didn't see anything like that 20 years ago. And I feel like when spoke out and, and I'm a big fan. So when I watch her strides that she makes on, on social media, um, not just social media, but that's how I engage um, her work. I've also seen it kind of grow to other, so there's things like the Time's Up movement, though I think in the last year they've had a bit of a rocky, some rocky things going on, but there's just been all these other movements that have come out that are supporting that continuing to be better, to make the world a safer place for, for survivors to maybe get to the day where we don't have survivors of sexual violence. I mean, it would be an amazing thing to, to, to have that someday in the future. But um, it really has been game-changing. Clients that are coming in, they are already coming in with less stigma, less shame, because they're seeing these communities that are sharing and, and showing that, that you can heal and that you can if you want, you can advocate there's, that there's a lot that there's a lot of empowerment going on and it really is beautiful. And I share that knowing that, you know, we just came from a very challenging presidency where there were a lot of instances of questionable sexual violence in the media from either from that administration, right? So 
in a time where that is also in the media, you're then seeing this beautiful empowering that really started. I I don't I'm getting my time frame mixed up, but I think started before and then seeing it grow. It's been just really an amazing thing to 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 witness. Yeah, I've seen, I mean, it, it's interesting since the whole Me Too movement started, people that I know that I, you know, I mean, I obviously you don't you're not always thinking that somebody has had an experience, right? Being sexually assaulted or, you know, sexual harassment. But even like men that I know, people that I just never would have ever thought of, they've come mm-hmm. forward and, and expressed their own experiences with sexual assault. And I mean, I was, I was kind of shocked by it, but I mean, it's good that they felt more comfortable mm-hmm. to be able to express that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that seeing that movement happening and seeing all these other movements coming, I agree. I think that I've seen more men, cisgendered men being more open about being a survivor and feeling less stigma and shame and talking about being a survivor. In our services, we've been able to offer a men's group where we haven't had enough men to do that before. And I forgot to mention that of all of the things we do, we also offer a lot of group therapy. We think that group is such a wonderful way to help survivors heal because they can see, like, I'm not alone. There are other people. I'm no different than these other people. There's nothing wrong with these other people. There's nothing wrong with me. And, uh, and we, like I said, we've been able to have a men's group. We haven't in years because we just never had enough men to form to do a men's group. You're all doing so much work. So you're bound to forget all the services that you offer. <laughs> Seems like you're all super busy with, with the work you're doing. Thank you. <laughs> we try to be, try to be active. <laughs> As an advocate for survivors of sexual assault. How do you keep doing this work, which must be so draining at times? I feel like I've asked, well, it's one of those things that I feel like I I think a lot about, but don't always focus on, if that makes any sense. (laughs) And to me, it's kind of like, there's no question that I would do this. I just always feel like this is what I would do. And I know that in recent recent history, this has been a little bit problematic to think this way, but sometimes people will think about how they have like a calling and, and I, and how, you know, it's not easy for people to do this work in a sustained way. And I think that if you can, then it is a calling and that it is a responsibility to stay doing the work. And I share that that's a little problematic because that implies that there's something like unique or special about, and and there isn't. I think anybody can do this work. It just means having to pay attention differently about self-care and how you're managing yourself and and your own like wellness. And and that's what I mean. I, I think anybody could, but for me, it's always been something that it's been no question that I would, I would do, I would do this work. Being where I am now, I feel incredibly grateful and lucky to even be where I am. War is one of the first rape crisis centers that started in the seventies. And it's been around for almost 50 years. And I really see it as not only something just to be a part of something that helps heal the community and then make sure to like be a custodian for the future so that it stays 
to heal the future. And just, there's nothing like it. Like there's no, there's sometimes I feel like we're in some kind of like loophole that people don't realize that there's these beautiful services that are free of charge to survivors of sexual violence. And one day they're going to figure this out. And, <laughs> but, but it, it's just such a unique thing that it, you don't really see it anywhere else. I kind of see it as like society's way of trying to correct wrongs and to be a part of part of that that can keep things going in the best way possible for survivors and then survivors of the future. To me, that's part of the, there's no question as to why I would do it. You're so right that it is something that affects all aspects of society that people don't really realize. And so I think it's important that people understand that, oh, she's a survivor. It's not going to affect me. But you never know if that person ends up being an employee at your work. And if you're the boss, if that person is taking time off because of traumatic related incidences or that person's perpetrator is working with you. So I think something to think about. And if I can share some of the statistics, one in three women and one in four men. So it's very, and those are people that have either been survivors of completed or attempted rape experiences between the ages of 11 and 17. So it is very, um, what you're saying is very likely that if you're in a room of three other women or four other men, that one, one person might have that experience. And I think it's important to be aware of it, not to ask them about it, obviously, but just to be aware and maybe adapt how to view how people are doing. I think Brene Brown has the motto of something like, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's something like everybody's doing their best. And if you have that mindset that everybody's doing their best, because you never know what somebody's experience is. And when you know statistics like this, you can only assume. I was just kind of curious about prevalence of human sex trafficking, if it's more prevalent now than it was in years prior, or if it's actually less prevalent now statistics from that's on the Polaris website, the Polaris project. And that, that I mentioned before, that's the organization that runs the national human trafficking hotline. They were able to recently put out their 2020 statistics. And according to their hotline, they had over 10,000 situations of trafficking in that year. The thing about this data around statistics and Knowing how data works for sexual violence is it's thought that that's only really the tip of the iceberg of the actual problem, because just like sexual violence, it's very underreported for all the reasons we mentioned before. But and there's more reasons why something might be underreported for trafficking. So my hope is that more people are comfortable reporting because there's more awareness and more places to go for that support. But I think it's probably still under, like it's hard to say that it's happening more often. I think it's just being reported more and there's still much more instances that are not coming to light. So April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And what war is doing? April is a our favorite month at war. It's Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And so it's our opportunity to make sure that sexual violence, sexual assault, abuse, and harassment kind of stay in the forefront of people's awareness for at least that month until the next next year. And um, and so in that month we do a lot of awareness activities. We also do a lot of activities to 
encourage people to donate. A lot of our funding comes through state and federal funds. We always need more funding though, um, donations and unrestricted dollars. We are unique in that all of the services that I described before are completely free of charge and we don't need to worry about insurance and we tend to be a safe place for undocumented people because we don't require social security numbers. We don't require anything like that. We do have a wonderful Latinx coordinator that does some amazing outreach work. And, and so a lot of our activities for Sam will include things that she'll be doing. Um, she, she hosts like a radio program weekly for the Latinx community. And we also have a couple of other things coming up. We have Teal Day. Teal is the awareness color for sexual violence. And so we usually do a press conference on Teal Day. And we also have our last event for the year is our biggest kind of like community organizing event. And it's called Hands Around City Hall. And um, we're, we're getting that up and running. And that will be at the end of April. And Hands Around City Hall is just a wonderful opportunity for survivors that want to share their stories to, to share their stories and help people realize or put some humanity to the statistics we've mentioned before of the one in four, one in three. So if enough people gather in the room, it becomes a really powerful experience. We've done hands around City Hall at City Hall inside and also inside the like plaza space and the outside of the City Hall. It just depends on, it rains a lot in April. So, <laughs> so we're having to often shift our outdoor and with the pandemic too, last year we did everything virtually. We're, I think we're all in a space now of, is it safe to start doing some things outdoors? Is it not? So we're seeing what that, what that looks like. But yeah, but those are some of the events that are coming up. And we'll have more events coming out. And all of that information can be found on our website and then also our social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter and I think we also have like a YouTube or like all of <laughs> You're everywhere. <laughs> we try to be. <laughs> That's great. That those sound like really great events. Here's the other beautiful thing about a rape crisis center. Again, I mentioned before that like these places are so amazing. To, to me, the history of rape crisis centers are so amazing. Rape crisis centers, a big component to being one is to have a volunteer element to your work. So we have a lovely volunteer community to be a volunteer or to work at war, everyone goes through a 40-hour sexual assault counselor training and become specifically trained on how to support survivors emotionally and you know what all these what the criminal process looks like, what the rape kit process looks like, all the things I mentioned before, so that you can be a present, knowledgeable support for that person that's going through this. And we have really some amazing people that volunteer with us that this, you know, they give their time to support others that are going through this. And we can always take more volunteers. We do the training three times a year and on our website is a way to um, connect. So if people can't donate money, and, but are more wanting to donate time, it's something we can explore as well. Really, our volu- we can't do our work without our volunteers. They are just 
I can't even, I can't say enough about how in awe I am of, of these people that do this with us. <laughs> oh, yeah, volunteers are very important. I think that that's great, encouraging people to volunteer and help out as, as much as possible. It's very important that people actually, it helps with awareness too. Would they have to be in Philadelphia? No, they, they don't. Most of the time they are. It's easier if you're in Philadelphia to get to Peace Arc so you can be present during, if, if, a, if someone's requesting a rape kit. We have staff that do that, but we're not a 24-hour staff. So that's where our volunteers come in. So people that are living in Philadelphia, though we do have some volunteers that live outside of in, in neighboring counties. Neighboring counties also have similar centers. So if someone's interested in volunteering, we might refer them to that. We work really closely with the other centers. We have really wonderful collaborative relationships with them. So we'll probably help get them connected to their, their county. Yeah, I think the same goes for people that are even outside the Philadelphia area. I mean, wherever you are, there's probably a place where you can also volunteer and, and help out as much as you can. And I think most counties, for the most part, have some sort of uh, sexual assault center or organization. So help is there if you need it. And you may not want to go right away. And that's okay. I mean, sometimes people don't go for decades. But when the time is right, help is there. Mm -hmm. And the work that you are doing on behalf of war is really, really important. And, you know, like you said, for you, it's, it's almost like a calling. And I don't know, I don't think anybody can do it, like you had said. <laughs> I think uh, I, I would give yourself a little bit more credit. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I, I guess if I was going to say anything else, it would be just really underscoring that the team that we have, they are so resilient. And it's been a hard time for everyone with COVID and all that comes with working virtually and the way that they have transitioned and, and particularly in Philadelphia, if I could maybe just underscore how, I mean, again, I'm just really lucky for the people that we have. They're really just amazing. And I'm sure the survivors feel the same way too. I hope so. Probably. <laughs> Good. You're not being so humble anymore. <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us and give us all this information that'll be very helpful yeah absolutely thank you If you or someone you know is looking for support and are outside of the Philadelphia area, be sure to look up a local sexual assault support services agency or provider in your local area. You can also call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. It's a 24-7 hotline and they will connect you with someone in your area. We want to thank Greg for sharing his story and to Rachel for telling us more about the incredible work that WAR is doing to support survivors of sexual violence in Philadelphia. It's April and there's a lot going on because it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month. To learn more about WAR, check out their website, woar.org, and also to see what they are up to this month.
There are many ways you can help. You can volunteer your time, you can provide pro bono services, and you can also give a small contribution. Anything can help, no matter how small. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, like and subscribe. Look out for the next episode. And we'll see you next time.